Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome to the madhouse. Welcome to the Madhouse. We are your protagonists. My name is Jimmy, and that's Joey. Hello. How's it going? It's all good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Good. Uh, I liked this film. It's a good choice. Yes, it is a cracking good film. Obviously starring our Lord and Saviour. Vincent Price. Yep, there right. you go. Beautiful. We should have a sound effect for every time Vincent Price is mentioned. Yes. It's a job for me for the weekend. <laughs> so this film released in 1971, directed by Robert Fust. Yes. And it's a good film. Yes, yeah, great film. Made one and a half million pounds at the box office. Did it? Which was good. Yeah, that's good for... Uh, apparently. Old money, isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, 1.5 million sovereigns. Sovereigns? Is that right? I don't know. Old money. Old money. Anyway, it doesn't sound that much these days. I checked. It was a hit. Definitely a hit. And it spawned a sequel that came out a year later, Dr. Fibes Rises Again. Yes. There was also going to be another one um, that never made it. I think it was going to be called Brides of Fibes. Okay. Brides of Fibes. Going along the, the familiar theme of adding a bride. Yeah. In the third film. <laughs> yeah. Why not? To begin with, the film had the tagline, Love means never having to say you're ugly. But this was changed after a poor performance at the box office. I don't know what it was changed to, because my DVD has the original tagline on it. Yes. But it did perform better after the change. I don't even know if it had another tagline, to be honest, or if they just removed it, because I couldn't find one. Oh, it also got pitched as um, Vincent's 100th film, but that was bullshit. Was it? Yeah, that's I bullshit. did wonder. Yeah, it's not actually his 100th film. Yeah, I couldn't see if it was true or not. And I mean, I know you can get a list of filmography, but then you have to decide what they counted as a as a short or as a TV straight to thing. No, but they just they put that in there just just to push it a little bit more. All right. Well, it was, uh, it was just welcome to bullshit. our 100th episode, everybody. Yes, we are celebrating by doing uh, Vincent Price's 100th film. <laughs> but this film did pretty well. Change, take the tagline away or change it, whatever they did. Because the original one didn't really show what type of film it was. There is a weird tagline. Love means never having to say you're ugly. Yes. We've not even said the name of the film yet, have we? You say it. I keep tongue-twisting myself so, over it. So, this week we're reviewing the film The Abominable Dr. Fibes. <laughs> and it is pronounced Fibes. Yeah. Fibes. Why? What did you think it was? Fibes is the place. Fibes. 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 Phobes. Fibes. Anyway, brilliant film. There's some there's some confusing names in this that we're definitely going to stumble on. Yes, I tripped over a few that are similar bad choices for names. Although there's reasons for the choices of some of the names. Okay. So, should we do a plot slot? Yes. And then maybe 
take a delve into Frights and Delights. Yeah, let me just have a little sip. You of have a sip. The good stuff this time. And I'll set a timer. Not pear this time, which is nice. I'll give you a countdown this time. Oh, okay. Uh, and I'm going to do it in a in a scary voice. No, do it in Michael Caine's voice. I can't do a Michael Caine's voice, and that's why you've told me to do it. I'll she give was it only 16 years old. <laughs> that wasn't me, that was Jimmy. <laughs> All right, you... I, yeah. <laughs> this is so bad. All right, three, two, and one. An organ player dressed entirely in glossy black hood and robes rises upward from the floor at the top of a raised performance area. The song finishes and a wider shot reveals a flight of descending steps with life-size wind-up musicians on either side. The black figure descends the steps, cranks the wind-up musicians into life, which play an amusing little waltz. A door opens and from a bright room beyond steps forth a young fashionable woman. The woman in white and the figure in black meet in the room centre over a glass floor. They pass a table in the back holding nearly a dozen life-size busts in white wax with hanging lights above them. The woman climbs the stairs to the balcony that surrounds at least one wall of the room while the figure in black steps to a large suspended bird cage on a gold chain with a black cloth covering it. He lowers the cage through a square hole in the floor where the woman, now below and dressed in a modern Russian garb, she got changed quick, didn't she, buckles the cage on the back of a prestigious car. The figure in black enters the car, rolling up the window with a man's profile painted on the glass. Ridiculous. The bedroom of a wealthy man reading in bed. He finishes, turns out the light and turns over for sleep. When I say he finishes... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, outside, what's, he, what's he reading? Yeah, Copy of Razzle? Saucy book. Outside the elegant car quietly comes to a stop. As the man sleeps, the skylight opens, the birdcage is lowered, and the black cover is hoisted up, soon followed by the cage itself, showing a bottom trapdoor swinging open. The skylight is closed. The man awakens, hearing the disturbing sounds about his room. He looks round... Shadows flutter past. Suddenly, there are bats on his bed climbing towards his face, screeching. The car returns at the mansion. The clockwork musicians kick into gear. The man in black switches off his musicians and sits at the organ while the young woman appears on the balcony. As the man plays on the organ, he and it sink back into the floor. Well, his hands actually don't match what he's playing on the organ. If Not I'm even be close. A little bit picky but about he's it. being really good dramatic, flinging him up in the air like he's uh, doing like some crazy surgery. So I think that was a bit of uh, imagery for us there. The okay. Crazy, crazy doctor. Yeah. Back in the dead man's bedroom, Sergeant Tom Shenley. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Fuck it. Shenley. Is that how you, how are you saying it? <laughs> You're putting an extra N in there. You're saying Schnenli. I think it's Shenley. Shenley recalls a similar weird death involving another surgeon stung by bees in his library. His face a mass of boils. At the mansion, two prosthetic ears and a nose sit on a dressing table. The formerly dark figure, now dressed in white, takes the nose, then the ears, then a light brown wig. The composed face of Dr. Anton Fibes is now seen. Camera focuses closely on another pendant worn by Fibes, zooming out to see him in a tux and handing an elegant frog's head mask to Dr. Hargreaves, who didn't know the party was a master fair. Foolish. Does I think that was bird... purposeful, by the way. Was it? 
Yeah, he was told, he wasn't told in his invite, I'm guessing, that it was a mask affair, so uh, he turned up with no mask and had to borrow one. So Fibes could uh, get Boom. the frog head on it's him. not just a monkey face. True, and I like that Fibes is dressed as a bird of prey, because he's yeah. preying on Dr. Hargreaves. Sorry, Pops I it on his head. That's fine. He popped it on his head. Asked Fibes for help donning the mask with its fancy catch. Fibes obliges, who sets the mask ever tightening catch in motion. Dark Town Strutter's ball plays as the frog mask strangles the screaming doctor who collapses and falls down a flight of stairs, blood squirting from the mouth of the frog mask. Fibes hangs his pendant over the next wax bust and blowtorches the face of Dr. Hargreaves. At the police station, Chief Inspector Crow dismisses Trout's request for additional men to investigate the growing string of exotic doctor murders. At the home of Dr. Longstreet, the doctor cuts a film reel from its wrapping. Miss Frawley, a housekeeper or companion of sorts, I think it's a housekeeper, startles him by announcing her departure for an evening off, for which the doctor seems most eager because he's about to watch a bluey. Yeah. Fives. Um, <laughs> sorry, there's a few hints that they're um, ding on the side. Are there really? Yeah, one man even mentioned it at some point. I can't remember who it was. Uh, just got to point out Dr. Longstreet played by the excellent Terry Thomas. Yes. Who... Dies in this film. Yeah. In a minute. Yeah. But then he is also in the second film. Is he? Yes. Is he reincarnated or another person? No, he's another person. All right. Fibes' car with painted images of Fibes on the window pulls up. Now, this is also an annoyance to me that he has his face painted on the side of a car. He's yeah. supposed to be pretending he's dead. Yes. Foolish. Dr. Longstreet runs his black and white film reel. Gulping wine as he lusts over the image of a snake dancer. Mrs. Frawley's feet appearing below the screen interrupts his private enjoyment. She calls him naughty for not touching his supper yet. <laughs> Asking about the screen, blocking the doorway. Longstreet awkwardly explains it's a modern invention to block drafts. She leaves dubious of his explanation. Back in Longstreet's study, the film reel leaves the spokes of the projector and its power cuts off. It starts up again to reveal Fibes' fashionable assistant dressed in white. Longstreet is absolutely transfixed. She stops him absentmindedly cracking a lever in midair and seductively pushes him backwards into a chair, tying his wrists to it. Once secured, Fibes switches on the room light and enters. The woman inserts a tube into a rubber-capped beaker as Fibes surgically cuts open Longstreet's sleeve before jabbing a needle into it, into his arm. Longstreet struggles helplessly, managing only to tear the pendant from Fibes' neck. At police headquarters, Shenley has successfully squashed interest of the press thus far and has run out of time. Ah, it has also terrible. turned up... Hang on. He has also turned up the fact that all three deceased doctors have worked with Dr. Vesalius. Trout and Shenley visit the home of Dr. Vesalius, led in by the doctor's teenage son. The boy is impressed that Detective Inspector Trout comes from Scotland Yard, but not the father, who busies himself with a model train set. Vesalius isn't fussed about the details of the three doctors until Trout lists off their names, all close friends of his. Back in Longstreet's study, Thibes withdraws Longstreet's blood as the sun rises and the woman plays. Close your eyes on her white violin. Thibes draws out every last drop. He packs up, leaving eight jars of Longstreet's bottled blood on the mantelpiece. 
Vesalius finds the death of his colleagues hard to believe. The phone rings for Trout, informing him of Longstreet's death, making it Vesalius' fourth colleague to have been murdered in an exotic manner. Back at the mansion and ready to burn another wax face, Five realises his pendant is missing. Trout and Schnenley look at Longstreet, drained dry as a bone. Visiting the goldsmith who made the pendant, Trout learns it's a part of a set of ten, each unique and ordered by a lady who didn't talk much and paid in cash. Tall, attractive, young and fashionable. As Inspector Trout leaves, the goldsmith hastens him back to add that the pendant symbols are Hebrew. Visiting a rabbi, Trout learns the Hebrew symbol is part of a list of ten curses visited upon the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, starting with boils, bats, frogs and blood. The list continues with rats, hail, beasts, locusts, deaths of the firstborn and finally darkness. Fives attaches a cable from a gold phonograph audio horn into the left side of his neck, as you do. Yep. He then speaks to an enlarged photograph of a young woman with his mouth never moving as he sits before her shrine expressing his love. That's the first time we hear Fibes talking as well. Yep. I think. Having gone over his medical history, Vesalius presents Trout his findings. He served 1,200 medical cases, discounting cases over five years old, 36 cases involved, any two of... Of the four slain doctors and a scant dozen where there were three were involved, but one involving all four. Trout reads the file. Victoria Regina Fibes. <gasps> whom the doctors were too late to help. Fibes tells the photograph that nine killed her. Nine shall die. Very good. Thank you. Trout continues going over the case file. Victoria died and her husband Anton died in a fiery car crash. Incinerated while racing back to be at her side but now interred in the family vault. On a back road bordered by a calm river, the daughter Fives' car opens the fashionable woman. Why do I keep describing her as the fashionable woman? She's a woman. She's dressed fashionably. Beautiful. Dressed in black with a black fur hat. <laughs> Walks a greyhound. As uh, the only time we see the greyhound as well. As a car approaches, the dog disappears and the woman peers into the, her car's engine. The man in the car, a gentleman, instructs his chauffeur to help the lady out. As the chauffeur greets the lady, Fives' car door opens unnoticed. Straight away, the chauffeur is rendered unconscious. A touch from size. Fives is the uh, Vulcan death grip, wasn't it? Yeah. Fives takes a lightweight machine from his vehicle and the woman steps over the fallen chauffeur. Hearing Elmer's tune playing outside his car, the slightly feeble gentleman tries looking out his window. The opposite door opens and the woman places the moving music box figurine inside, soon followed by Fibes and his machine. Over coffee, the police discuss the remaining plagues and their placement of guards around all five surviving surgical team members, save Dr. Kitje. Okay. Is that how you say it? No. Katja. Kitaj. Kitaj. Who's white? Don't know what to say. Uh, that's <laughs> not a name that you'd associate with a young, hip, white person. Uh, I, th I think that's how they spell Smith. Oh. Uh, back in the 70s. <laughs> the money from Fives' Switzerland account was transferred to England two years ago and withdrawn in cash by a tall, attractive and fashionable woman who rarely spoke a word. I wonder who that could be. That's how I like my women. 
The inspectors reach the muddy back road where Dr. Hedgepath's car, an unconscious chauffeur, have been found. With difficulty, Trout opens the car door, frozen solid. Likewise, Dr. Hedgepath inside, he's frozen solid too. It's the curse of hail. That's probably the first time in a long time that he's been uh, solid. In the back of a car. <laughs> in the back of a car. The constable points out the lightweight machine connected to the car's running engine to deliver a 100% blast of Arctic hail. Back at the wax busts, five torches the likeness of Dr. Hedgepath with its wax dripping on the pendant. At home, Dr. Vesalius plays chess with his son, but his troubled mind is elsewhere and he sends his son to bed. His son hopes to share a super music piece he's come across through old Darrow at the music shop who remembers all the great organists. Now Dad's interest is up and he picks up the music score his son leaves behind. At the music shop, Vesalius picks through the old posters to find one on Fibes, dated 1904, and tries to engage Mr. Darrow in a conversation about him. Back home with Trout, Vesalius shares his experience of meeting Darrow, who can hardly see and seem to insist that Fibes was still his patron. Trout now wants to visit the Fibes mausoleum. Trout and Vesalius enter a graveyard while Trout reveals that Fibes had degrees in music and theology. Vesalius says it neatly explains Fibes' knowledge of the Egyptian plagues, which Trout hadn't yet connected, the douchebag. The graveyard attendant opens the Fibes mausoleum for Trout and Vesalius. Vesalius asks if anyone ever visits the place. The attendant says no, but Trout spots a bouquet of roses on Victoria's burial vault. The attendant swiftly but quietly slips away, removing the vault and coffin lids reveals a small wooden box housing Anton Fives' ashes. Dissatisfied, Trout speculates that the ashes of the incinerated car crash could be anybody. Fives may have survived and returned to London, which could explain old Darrow thinking Fives was still around. Dr. Kachage drives up across open ground to the hangar of the London Aeroplane Club. Kataj's plane readies for takeoff. Shenley arrives just as the plane heads downfield. He's racing to catch up, but the plane achieves liftoff. With the plane well aloft, rats break out, targeting Dr. Kataj. Both Shenley and Fibes watch as the plane goes out of control and crashes. At a men's club where Trout and Shenley escort Dr. Whitcomb out, as Shenley takes Whitcomb's leather duffel bag he and trout open the double doors whereby a whooshing sound heralds the head of a brass unicorn piercing whitcomb's torso and nailing into a thick freestanding wooden wall instantly killing him i just want to say this is taking us forever <laughs> right let's skip to the end do the deaths what deaths have we got left brussels sprout how does that happen? So, Fibes is cooking a concoction of bizarre Brussels sprouts. He goes to the hospital, cuts a hole in the floor, he drips his Brussels sprout juice all over Nurse Allen's face and then inserts some locusts that then feed on the Brussels sprouts and also eat Nurse Allen. Right, she's dead. She's dead. Who's next to die? Next, Fibes kidnaps the child of Vesalius. He has him strapped to a chair and he's inserted a key into his lungs. Oh yeah, so and Vesalius he's... has to do operation on yes. him to get the key out to get him off the chair. Yeah. He's got six minutes, which is the exact time as he, uh, his wife existed on the operating table. And to emphasise the six minutes, he has a slow dripping acid tube. To burn the face off the child. Yes. Vesalius manages to do it in six minutes. It's gets the key out, moves his kid, 
And then Fives has disappeared down into the basement where his wife is embalmed in a bizarre coffin tomb type thing. Yeah, when they chase him down there, they don't see him because he's laid down next to his wife. Yeah. Injected some embalming fluid in one arm. Yeah. Something that'll take the blood out the other arm, which would be agony. Yeah. And embalms himself alive. Yes, and that is the last curse of darkness, which is... His own darkness. Yes, which is beautiful, because on that, like, tomb thing, there's the sun, and then there's the moon. Yeah. And then in front of the moon is the earth, and it's showing the earth dark. Lovely, f*** me. And then it ends with somewhere over the rainbow playing. Lovely. Comical. F***ing hell. That was a long plot slot. Done. That was old school. That was like apostle. Yes, that was. Detail. Jesus. I'll cut that down as much as I can. Move on. Yeah, to Frights and Delights. Yeah, yeah. Finally, it's the abominable Frights and Delights. We made it. What you got? Uh, Joseph Cotton, who played Dr. Vesalius, apparently felt uncomfortable during some scenes, so Price, being an experienced legend, kept making jokes and funny faces to help him. Price kept cracking into laughter, sorry, and ruining his makeup. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's a nice delight. A little behind-the-scenes information there. Uh, in the... Oh, I think this might be a fright. In the script, Fives was abusive to Volnavia, who we haven't mentioned is the fashionable young lady. Yes, Volnavia. Uh, he was eventually going to stab her to death, then escape his house, which uh, catches fire, and he was going to fly off in a hot air balloon with his wife, Victoria's body. And then it was decided to make Fives a more sympathetic character. Yeah, I think that ending was rewritten by Fuest, if that's how you say it. And one of the writers of The Avengers from 1961, but neither of them were credited for the change. Weird. Yeah. The character Vesalius is believed to have been named after a Flemish scientist known for cutting up corpses to learn about the human body, which at the time he was practicing science was looked down upon. Lovely. Cushing was going to play him. Yes. But he was... He going to play Fives, wasn't he? No, he was going to play Vesalius. Oh, okay. Uh, but he couldn't do it because his wife was very ill and she died the year it came out, I think. Oh, or shit. whilst it was being filmed. Sucks. No words are spoken for ten minutes in this film, which is mental. Couldn't do it now. Five minutes of that is the opening of him playing an organ. <laughs> yeah. Not his organ. Well, playing his organ. Yeah, not just, his organ. Yeah. But you couldn't do that nowadays because people don't have the f***ing... People would leave. Yeah. I'm bored. Because they don't have the... What's it called? Patience. Patience. Uh, the Rat Attack. Rat Attack? The Rat Attack was written on a boat originally. He was going to be attacked on a boat. But this was changed to allow a plane because you could escape a boat by jumping off and the rats wouldn't follow. Also, let's face it, a plane crash is uh, more dramatic. Absolutely. The bats at the start are not real flesh-eating bats. Would you believe it? They're not real flesh-eating bats. No, apparently not. They're cheaters. They're those ones that like fruit gums. Okay. Do you remember the advert for the fruit gums? Uh, bat, fruit gum bat. Vaguely. Fruit bat. Vaguely. Fruit loving bat. I've got one more, and that's it. Okay. But I know you've got something lined up, so I don't mind. Uh, Volnavia. For Navia. The strange, obedient lady. Fashionable. 
You're fashionable, fashionable, was she? Yeah, was she fashionable? I hear she might have been tall and quiet as well. Uh, she has no reason to be with vibes. <laughs> by the way. Yeah, it's f***ing mental. Just, just there, doing what he says. Absolutely mental. Originally, she was going to be another clockwork machine. That would have been... That would have been, That would have explained it a bit more. Yeah, but they wanted Five's assistant to be able to do more movement to help him. And, and can you imagine having him doing the, the waltz dancing with a shitty 1971 clockwork robot? Yeah. Wouldn't have worked. That's all my frights and delights. Sorry, I haven't got much for this one. I've, I'm just going to chuck... I've not got these written down, but I'm just going to chuck a few observations in. You just mentioned that one. Volnavia doesn't seem to have... She's just random. Yeah. Isn't it? Just a woman who's just there. Just a woman who's there. The uh, the other thing... Why why has he got a clockwork band? Mental. I know he's an organist. We probably want to play a... with a band, but doesn't want people around. Okay. Right, that's just... That's crackers. Yeah. He's got a lot of time on his hands, which is fair enough. Yeah. To invent all these wacky death killing machines. Yep. Well well put. Yeah, but still I still like the film. I still think it's good. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. In but any way. Why should it? No. Right. I thought it was quite funny when uh, Price was uh moving to the voice but not actually moving his face. That that looked Yeah, that awkward. There's a bit that he eats as well. Is it? Puts oh, it into yeah. his throat. Yeah. Weird. That's, he's not chewing that. Right, what have you got? Fucking hell. Anyway. <laughs> right, I'm just going to run down you the ten plagues of Egypt okay. and why they were bullshit. Okay. Oh. So, first one, blood. So, all the water in Egypt was turned to blood, which killed the fish. So, the actual natural explanation for this is that the Ethiopian highlands are made up of red clay, so it's possible that torrential rains could have started a mud-red flood that turned the Nile red and choked out the fish, fish which got infected with anthrax. Okay. Second plague was frogs. Millions of frogs invaded villages and homes and then died en masse. Natural explanation, the frogs were trying to escape the muddy waterways. They all died because they were also infected with the same anthrax. Third, lice, gnats and fleas. Lice infected the Egyptian people's heads and swarms of gnats and fleas darkened the skies. Natural explanation, the lice, gnats and flies were feasting on the dead frogs. Yeah, okay. Four, pestilence that killed cattle by the thousands. The fields from which the cattle fed were turned toxic by the previous two plagues. Yeah, Following. I can see that. Plus, the the Nile water is what they use Yeah, for all the land, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So, fifth one, festering boils on people's skin. The boils were symptoms of the same disease that caused the pestilence in the animals. These people... Saw this People out. who believe this, they must be in denial. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> hell! If you think about it, though, it's fair enough. <laughs> Hail! <laughs> that was good. That that went by me as well. <laughs> that was good. A destructive hail. Now this one's a bit of a grasp. A destructive hailstorm led waste to crops and killed thousands of animals and people. All right. Natural explanation: destructive hailstorms are uncommon in North Africa, but have been known to occur. So that one's a little bit sketchy. 
Okay. Locusts. Millions of locusts covered the landscape. Natural explanation. Locust swarms are a common occurrence in the region, especially after heavy rain. Hail. Dust storms that block the sun. Obviously, easterly winds blew dust from neighbouring Libya over Egypt. The storm was made worse by the recent loss of crops. Not unlike America's Dust Bowl during the Great Depression. Right. Deaths of all the firstborn. Possibly could be a stretch here, I don't know. Natural explanation. The other nine plagues made conditions so harsh that the infant mortality rate skyrocketed. Uh, it doesn't explain how older firstborns were killed, but with all the death and destruction plaguing the region, it sure would have seemed to the Egyptians that someone up there was angry at them. Certainly a bit pissed off. One yeah. of them. There you go. I don't have the darkness one, but there you go. That's what I'm saying. Two were changed, weren't they? The gnats and the flies returned to rats and bats. Yes, the gnats and film. flies returned to rats and bats for uh, making filming easier. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Right, boom. Should we move on? Uh, yeah. What's next? Master of the Macabre, I believe. Yeah. Let's move on over. Master of the Macabre. Welcome to the Master of the Macabre. We're about to discuss who our best performer in this film is and probably who was a plague on the film. In fact, we don't do that. But that would have been a good intro if we did. Lovely. Who have you got for Master of the Macabre? We both know the answer to this because we have a rule. Yeah, it's Vincent Price. Vincent Price. Vincent Price! Nice. Right, that was Master of the Macabre. Lovely. Thank you for listening. Vincent Price <laughs> wins every time we do a Vincent Price film. That is the law. Yep. Of the Madhouse. So, uh, If you want to start on that, come and start on it. It was the best in this anyway. So... And what? Yeah. Let's go do the Madhouse rating system then, shall we? Yeah. The Madhouse rating system. Here we go. It's the Madhouse rating system. First up, we've got that tension and that suspense. Well, Jimmy, it's a horror film in 1971. Yeah. Uh, it does a good job of chucking in the tension and splitting it with comedy. Yes. The score pops up a notch when a death occurs or is imminent, but I never felt tense. I was never on the edge of my seat. Uh, probably because techniques have progressed so much in the decade since it was made that I'm used to different levels of shitting my pants. Yes, definitely. If you, I imagine if you were there in the movie theatre in 71 watching it, You'd, you'd be a little bit tense, For, especially at the, the the climax where the the acid is dripping down. Oh yeah, six minutes. Oh, he's got to try and get that key out. Yeah, his son's gonna end up like a bloody half boiled, half sucked boiled sweet. Uh, yeah, yes. and then this fucking Volnavia gets it in the end, doesn't she? Yep. Um, I think that that's for me. That's probably the only sort of tense part. There are more modern films nowadays that do it better. Yeah, even at the... So this is a couple of years, isn't it, before Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, yes. And and those types of films at the time... Oh, shit, yeah. If you're talking did about... Did this feel a bit oldy even for then? Maybe, yeah, maybe. 
Night of the Living Dead was 68, was it? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it wasn't pushing the boundaries as much as you would like, even at the time. But saying that, the fucking story, I think, is... I think it's really... I think it's really good. I think it's really... Uh, what's the word? Um enjoyable it's enjoyable certainly is it's um different i think yeah i know what you mean if you just put if you just lay it down like okay a dot uh, uh an organist is getting revenge for uh the death of his wife on the nine doctors that couldn't save her life and he's apparently dead and he's all disfigured and he yeah. likes to play the organ and then he makes up all these crazy ways of trying to kill all these doctors and then lays to rest with his wife at the end. We don't know whether he's dead or alive. We know he's not because there's a second one. So the basis for the story is all right. But yeah. does the execution give you the tension and suspense you want? No. Okay. So that's the thing about these the films from this sort of era, the, the 60s and 70s. F***ing great storylines, but just they just not executed like it's 2020. Yeah, I thought Night of the Living Dead did really well for the time. Intention. Yeah. Racking up the uh, the stakes as it goes along. This this film is kind of like, the story's good, the course fine for the time period, but it takes it too much of, we do this, then we do this, then we do this, then we do this. Yeah. Step by step going through the scenes. Yeah. Rather than thinking, how do we, you know, give it like this curve of tension up and down and build it up to a... Yeah. Crescendo of doom. Yeah. I like that. You were doing it like a breast. What, my hand movement? Yes. It wasn't Viewers me. couldn't see that, or the listeners couldn't see that, but it was like he was rubbing a supple breast. Well, so no staff attention no and suspense. No staff attention and suspense. <laughs> What's next? Next, I believe it is uh, line, <laughs> gore, and visual effects. The effects in this film are pretty good. Even saying they were... Is it 51 years? 70... 70... It's 50 years. 50 years. What are you saying? 49 years. 49 years ago. 14... This is 49 years ago. This film came out 49 years ago. Right. No, 50... 59. 49. F***ing hell, maths, maths. Quite a few decades ago. I think it's 49 years. It had some good effects... Even to say it was that many decades ago, from the green girl on the face to the comical impaling of the unicorn horn through the chest. And the fact that, they, yeah, and then that you could see when they were unscrewing him yes. from it, and that you could just see his feet going yeah. past yeah. every little bit. That was funny. Yeah, that was a good visual. Uh, and did you notice they went, I think it's a left thread, but they turned it the wrong way. They went, yes, it is a left thread. <laughs> <laughs> so they just got that, they got the thread wrong. Anyway. That doesn't matter, <laughs> but uh, a few bits look less convincing these days, such as the man uh, drained of blood, just like he's got too much white foundation on. Well, yeah, even Fibes is supposed to be wearing, um, his whole face is supposed to be prosthetic. Yeah. And he just looks like he's just got just too much white. Yeah, he looks sickly as well. Yeah. Price doesn't look good in this film. He can look suave. Yeah, he doesn't look good. Doesn't look good in this film. He doesn't look good in this film. It looks like he's been on a bender for four or five days. Yes. Too much scotch. Yeah. 
Uh, the Clockwork Band is well done. I know you weren't a fan, but they look creepy as hell to me. They do look creepy as hell, but you can't. You, you know, it's just people wearing. Oh yeah, but you got to clockwork orange. Yeah, clockwork orange. But like clockwork mask. A lot of these day, things these days, you you know it's CGI. We just gotta deal with it. You know, it's not really. There's not really. Uh, oh, was it twelve balloons? Oh, like six real ones, and <laughs> was it in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there's always something creepy about a doll, anyway, or clockwork beings. And this is a whole band of them, so yeah, that's creepy. But um, they they do come into a little bit more effect in the in the second one. Um, okay, they're in the uh, he takes his he takes his clockwork band on on the road. Oh, do they do gigs? At the start of the first one, they don't. Yeah, they do do gigs. Yeah, to replace a couple of the guys because they get too into drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't get paid. Said, so "What's this? Some sort of wind up." <laughs> The sets are awesome. <laughs> he has that room with his organ in it and the curtains that come down uh, as a ballroom backdrop. I quite liked that whole set of his room. Yeah, I like it. It's all art deco, in it? Yeah. And it, it, it fitted the film pretty well. It, it gave it this creepy scene set to have rather than just the boring 70s-type offices. I uh, think that's the dream, isn't it? If you're a musician, you want to... You wanna be levitated up onto a stage whilst playing your instrument, don't you? Yes. That'd be good. Yeah, that'd be great. So it's set in 1925, this film. So all the sets had to have like a 20s vibe to them, but some of them felt very 70s to me. Oh, yes. Definitely got a whiff of the 70s all yeah. over it. Uh, even the suits. It's It's obviously set in England. Yeah. It didn't have a. It didn't feel like the Roaring Twenties then, but everything was well made. The sets were at Elstree Studios in London. Doctor Fibes Mansion was Cold Coat Towers on Elstree Road, and the cemetery was Highgate Cemetery in London. So filmed okay, on the uh, yeah, location in London, basically. London. Yeah, you do a Michael Caine impression again. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. She was only 16 years old. I don't know that second... What was that second one from? Um, a oh, film? Harry something. Is it a recent one? <sighs> like sort last of. 10, he's 15 old. He's years. old. He's, he's old, isn't it? It's Does Harry he take revenge something. on some chavvy guys? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, and his mate gets killed. And he goes after them. Yeah. yeah. So, it's good. Master Wayne. That's Batman. Batman. So the original plagues had flies and gnats. In this film, they used rats and bats purely for the visual effects. Are you rhyming on purpose? No. I'm doing very good. This was a good good. call because gnats and flies would be hard to make scary in a film. I imagine in real life a plague of gnats and flies would shit you up. But for good cinema, it made sense to do the switch. Yeah, I think it's all about cost as well, isn't it? They probably ain't got the technology to do a shitload of gnats. Well, yeah, if you're paying all the animals individually by the hour, you can have less bats. That's true. And spend less than if you had thousands of flies. So, yeah, probably financial, I think. <laughs> Price's face was cut in something called uh, collodion. Okay. Which effectively made it impossible for him to move his face much at all because it dries stiff. So that's helped him, apparently, because he kept almost saying the words. Oh, right, okay. Oh, yeah, fair enough, yeah. 
So for gore and visual effects, I am tempted to give it a star. I'd give it a star because I like all the uh, sort of crazy ways that he went about killing people. And I think they did it quite well. Yeah. Weird thing. The drop-down paper picture of a woman that he laid on the floor yeah. to drill a hole through. Yeah. How is that in any way necessary? Absolutely not. You'd have to know exactly where she was laid well, to yeah. lay it on top, yeah. which means there's literally no point in laying it on top anyway because you'd know exactly where she's laid. Yeah, mental. Bullshit. And he didn't even get her in the face the first time. He drilled through the eyes of the, the, the f***ing paper thing and he got it on the lamp. He missed yeah, he did, yeah. miles off, so it was pointless. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. It was absolutely pointless and not necessary. Yeah. So that is basically this film. Absolutely pointless, pointless and not necessary. Kind of shoddy made in some bits and weird, but enjoyable. Fucking great watch. <laughs> yeah. Right, next up we have the performance. The performance of Joseph Cotton here. Yes. He complained that he had to remember so many lines while prices were all re- pre-recorded. I think this may have been in jest, but when you read it written down, it sounds like he's been a dick. I think it might have been like, oh, what, okay, yours are all pre-recorded, mate. i got to remember mine. No, I think Cotton's being a dick. Oh, okay. But the thing about Vincent Price is that he could not only memorise his lines for the film, he could memorise everybody else's lines for the film. Yep. He's nice. done it on... He did it on loads of stuff. There was some very early films that he did with some famous actors who were alcoholic and uh, I can't remember his name. It's some sort of pirate pirate film. But Price just learned all the f***ing lines for, for it. Anyway, he was good at it. Yeah. He, um, yeah. He said something, didn't he, um, um, Yes, but I still know all of them, even in in response to that all being pre-recorded. Yeah. Yes, but I still know... Uh, yeah, I still... I know all mine, and I know all yours. Yeah. Talent, you see? That's why he's the ledge. Joanna Lumley was in the un- uh, the unedited original cut. Yes. But she was cut from the final product. I couldn't see that footage anywhere, so I presume that's lost forever. Because she was in the Avengers, wasn't she? Yeah. So I think and that's one of the writers from the Avengers it. worked on some bits of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vesalius' son's voice is dubbed. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Which I is bad because that anyway. was what they had was bad. So how bad was it before? Yeah. I just wanted to twat him in the I face. I went to the organ shop, Papa. He doesn't say that, but do you know what I mean? He's got that kind. That, yeah. That you got the vibe of him right there. I hated him. I wanted to see his face melt. Are you going to play him a wicked solo? (laughs) (laughs) No, you've heard me playing guitar. (laughs) I'd have to overdub the guitar. (laughs) With me. (laughs) (laughs) So I should have let you say that then. I can't smell coffee. We'll get Andy to do it. Yeah. Yeah? yeah, Overdub both of us. Yeah. Uh, So Vincent Price, basically, the outstanding actor in this film. The, The cops were good. Yeah, they were they're they're funny, aren't they? They they yeah. bring the comic relief. Trout yeah. brings the comic relief, and also uh, Trout's boss, who keeps calling him Pike. I thought that was quite funny because yeah. it's another fish, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, uh, the Trout looked like the cop from Only Fools and Horses. Do you remember their old friend? Yes, but I don't think it's the same guy. Definitely not the same guy. No, that guy's a famous actor. They they had um, 
similar voices and similar looks. Yeah. And they both play cops. Yeah. I think it must be the same person. You don't have three coincidences like that without it being fact. What are you giving it for performance, Jimmy? Oh, it's, uh, I don't know. Because it's Vincent, I want to give it a star. But what are you saying? The only bad acting was probably Vesalius's son. Okay, yeah, we can't hold it down for that. No, everyone else was good. I think they did what they were meant to do. I think our beef with this film is the concept and execution, probably from directing and cinematography, not the acting. I've not got a beef with the concept. I think the concept's great. I think it's... Yeah, I don't mean the concept, I mean the execution. Execution of the concept. Holding up that thing of a woman when he really didn't need it to find where she was laying. um, Just other bits that were just... Why Brussels sprouts as well? Yeah. Why Brussels sprouts? Yeah, so... Well, I suppose it's got to be something, isn't it? Locusts eat crops. So, sprouts are a crop, why not? Yeah, would they... Well, I don't know. Brussels sprout farmers plagued by locusts? Any Brussels sprout farmers out there, just pop us a message, see if you have problems with locusts. Yep. Um, okay. That's a new low. Personally, I would give this a, a one for... Give it one. <sighs> would I, though? Yeah, let's give it one. <laughs> give We're it gonna... one for performance, because right. it's the great Vincent Price. Okay. So... It's not his best film either, though. Definitely not his best film. No. Miles away. No. good, though. Next is the musical score... And sound effects. The organ music that the film opens with is War March of the Priests by Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdy, which is a famous song. Yes. Uh, the song Dark Town Strutter's Ball uh, was written by Shelton Brooks, which is uh, contemporary to the 20s, uh, who was from Ontario, Canada. Yep. Is that your good Canada or bad Canada? That's good, Ontario. Good Canada, yeah, right. respect Ontario. Apparently, Price would send a lot of summers, spend a lot of summers in Ontario. Yep, fair play. Uh, but the rest of the score was composed by Basil Kirchin and includes uh, the 1920s era source music as influence, uh, including that Dark Town Strutters Ball and Charmaine. A uh, couple of famous songs there. The score's pretty good. Nothing hugely influential to me. Again, even for the time, there's better scores out there. There's this stuff that pushed boundaries more. It did feel like the soundtrack equivalent of like a Paint by numbers. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. You know what your job is. Yeah. You know what you're doing. Yeah. The songs, the songs are good. The, the organ music obviously uh, has a has a tone and a feel to where you are with uh, Price Price's character. Well, I thought they could have done. I thought they could have done it darker. Yeah. I thought they could have played a lot darker organ music because it seemed a bit happy. But do you know what I mean? More darker. Yeah. It was more Benny Hill than f***ing Exorcist. Yes. <laughs> but I think his stuff, but it was very clever how the songs linked with the deaths of the Doctors, wasn't it? Uh-huh. So you had like oh, Dark yeah. Strutter's ball and the guy got his head crushed. Yep. He was at the ball. And uh, the close your eyes when Terry Thomas was getting his uh, blood drained. Yep. She weirdly just whacked a violin out and played it there for for him, didn't she? Yeah, of course. You've always got, you've always got to carry your violin with you. Yeah. So I thought in that way that was clever how the songs sort of linked with the deaths. Yeah. But Price could have been playing more of a darker riff. 
Yes, and those songs weren't originals. They're song choices. Yeah. So, they've, they've, I mean, they've chosen the songs to do rather than writing them. They have written yeah. score for this film, obviously, as well. I don't know what score we're on at the moment. Two. I'd probably give it half. Let's give it half. So, on two and a half out of five, and we're moving on. Moving on to overall experience. I'm going to leave it as it is. Two and a half. Okay. Yeah, but uh, assuming that you're probably going to give it one. Or you're going to give it half. No, I'm going to give it... I'll give it... Keep it at two and a half. But I urge anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it. Because it is good. It's enjoyable. It's not going to be on my rewatch list anytime soon. What? I've seen it about five times. Alright. Good for you. (laughs) That wasn't a boast. I was just saying. I've seen it once. I've got it on DVD. I'll uh, it's good watch, watch it again in the future when the mood comes over me, but I, I don't think that will be within the next couple of years. Let's put it that way. All right, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right, so two and a half out of five. Two and a half out of five. For the abominable Dr. Fibes. It's good to have in your back pocket, that one. It's a good Vincent Price flick. Put it next to your violin. Yeah. So that when you kill someone next time, you can get your violin out. Yeah, or whatever instrument you want to play. Doesn't have to be a violin, could be a cello. Not putting that in your back pocket though. Or a violin actually. Harmonica. There you go. Hey, harmonica or Learn, whatever. close your eyes on harmonica and you'll be set for any blood draining. Kazoo. It's my choice of film today, Jimmy. Are you ready to have a pop and have a guess? Yeah, I'll have I'll have a little I'll have a little go. Alright, I'm excited about this because yeah Yeah, I'm excited. Okay. Shit, are we yeah, okay. Yeah. What? Well, we need to announce the winner of the contest as well. Oh, yeah, let's do that first. All right, we'll do that first. You do that. I'll do the uh, film choice in a second. Okay, so the question was, what is the tagline from the film Dawn of the Dead? Love means you never to have to say your... Ah! Nope, that wasn't it. When there's no more room in Tesco. Nope, that's not it either. When there's no more room in hell, the dead shall walk the earth. That's the correct answer. Right, we've put some names in a hat, and this time we are going for the... No, we're going for a shoe. It's a shoe. We've it put is. names in a shoe. Yeah, well, your hat was in the other room last minute. Are you ready? I'll rustle your pick. Yeah. Okay, right, here we go. It's... Stephen Lindsay from Bristol, come on down, collect your lovely framed Dawn of the Dead poster. Actually, you don't have to come and collect it, we'll ship it to you. Yes. Pop us your address. I'll give you an email back. In the email. Telling you you've won. What's his name? Is he Steve, Stephen Lindsay? Stephen Lindsay. I like Bristol, we've got family in Bristol. Very f***ing Bristol-y. Okay. Bristol accent. That yeah, was vaguely Eww. West Country ish. I couldn't know you. Bristol. Why? Bristol. No, sorry. Sorry, Stephen. Sorry. You don't want it anymore, do you? Right. Tough. Film choice. Well done, Stephen Lindsay. You win a poster. Kisses. Of Dawn of the Dead. You win a Headstone Horrors album. Oh, exciting. Some cards. Stickers, stickers, chuck a patches in there as well. Uh, yeah, we'll chuck some platforms in, and I think that's about it. Is that what we said? Yes. If we said anything else, we'll send that to you as well. Lovely. My film choice. You ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay. okay. 
A team of Vatican investigators descends upon a church in a remote area to demystify the unusual happenings, but what they discover is more disturbing than they had first imagined. Oh. This was recommended to me yesterday afternoon. Uh, I bumped into someone I knew on the street and he, he asked me about the podcast. He listens every so often. And um, he asked me if I'd seen this and I said no. I will tell you now, it seems to have two names. Oh, okay. Um, I've watched it and I liked it. And it has a certain name on Prime. When I gave it a Google to get this IMDb description, it's come up with a different name. But I'm, it's the same film and, it, and it, it's definitely what I Google and it's the same characters, so... It seems to have two names. You've got two choices, I guess. I don't know. I'm just going to have a punt and say The Possession. No. Uh, it, on Prime, it's called The Borderlands. Okay. And on IMDb, it seems to be called Final Prayer. I'm guessing we'll find out in our research between now and the next episode why that is. Oh, okay. Why there's two names. Uh, they have two names. Like, they're in different countries, they get named different things. So yeah. in America, something would be probably called, called different... Final Prayer in the US. Yeah. It is an English film as well. Yeah. Uh, it's probably called... Yeah, it's probably called something else in America. Good film. I liked it. Okay. Who's in it? Any big names? You have in this film. Uh, no one that I recognise, by the way. It's not Thor Birch, is it? No. Ah, that's a shame. Did you want another Thor Birch film coming up? <laughs> we well, it's been one. a couple. <laughs> it's been a few weeks now, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, Robin Hill is in this. No. Gordon Ken... Sorry, Gordon Kennedy. No. No, I, d- I don't know anything, to be honest. Uh, but it was a good film. Okay. It's nice. Peter Charlton, I recognise him. Don't know what from. Anyway, go watch that on Prime. It is included in Prime if you have it. it I don't think it's on Netflix. What's it called again? The Borderlands. The Borderlands. UK Prime. If you're in the US, you may want to look for Final Prayer. It's a 2013 film, by the way, so m- more modern than uh, some we've uh, done recently. Still seven years ago, though. Ah, oh, no, it makes you feel old, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, 2013, yeah, what's that? A couple of years old? No. <laughs> no. Go and check out Final Prayer. I had some plugs. We don't have time. I'll do them next week for a couple of people. And I guess we call them time of death on this episode, are we, Jimmy? Yeah. Well, we will see you next time on the Madhouse Podcast. We'll be looking at Borderlands slash Final Prayer. And we're done. Have a good time. See you in two weeks. Yay! Time to the Madhouse! Right, f***ing personally. Right, f***ing cider.